Welcome to Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jeff Pickering. Around the table on Capital Conversations, you'll hear from the policy team of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, as well as featured guests from outside our D.C. office. Our conversations cover the policy debates and news shaping our world as we aim to connect our Christian theological motivations to political engagement in Washington. This week on the show, Travis, Chelsea, and I welcome ERLC President Dr. Russell Moore back to the Capital Conversations Roundtable to talk about a lot of the big stories of the past three months. We're going to cover uh, the coronavirus and the church, uh, what this all has meant for the state of religious liberty in America and churches, what they need to be considering as they as they move toward reopening and, and trying to get back to a, a normal rhythm in their in their weeks and, and with Sunday services and all the different things that churches need to be thinking about as they do that. Uh, we also talk about coronavirus and the invisible in our society, the just staggering amount of loss, both in life and employment throughout this pandemic, uh, and in what to make of the fact that 43% of coronavirus deaths in the United States have come to the elderly in assisted livings and nursing homes around the country. This is a this is a small percentage of the overall population, and yet nearly half of the hundred thousand deaths to this to this novel virus have come in in these places. And and what does that mean? And how should Christians think about it? Uh, Then we also talked to Dr. Moore about the issues of injustice uh, that we have seen uh, in the the tragic killings of Ahmaud Arbery, uh, George Floyd, and other African-American men and women in recent weeks. It has just been another one of those horrifying stream of, of stories and videos that and it really sparked a lot of conversation about race in America and conversation and lament in the public square. And so we we get Dr. Moore's thoughts on that as well. Uh, so this is, uh, like many of our conversations on this podcast, it's it's wide ranging and we cover a lot. And if you enjoy these conversations, uh, I'd encourage you to also considering checking out our weekly policy newsletter to keep up with the work of Dr. Moore, Travis, Chelsea, Stephen, and myself here in Washington, D.C. Uh, last week's newsletter focused on the changes coming to China and Hong Kong, particularly the changes of China enforcing a new sweeping security measure on Hong Kong, which totally undermines the system of law and that has upheld the financial sector and human rights and, and freedom on that island city, the, the long-term one country, uh, two systems law that, that the Chinese Communist Party is, is seeking to undermine. Uh, Travis and Chelsea last week, ahead of the Chinese Communist Party's uh, National Congress, where they were going to enact this new law, they wrote a piece about it and and why the freedom-loving world uh, should be paying attention to that. So we we cover that from a perspective of caring for human rights and religious liberty in that part of the world. We're covering important issues like that every week on our policy newsletter. And uh, you can go sign up for that newsletter at erlc.com slash policy. And so with that, uh, I take you now to our conversation uh, with Travis, Chelsea, and Dr. Russell Moore. All 
All right. Well, thanks for being with us, Dr. Moore. We wanted to start by talking about uh, coronavirus and the church and how uh, the pandemic has affected um, our churches and and how this you know this issue has raised questions about religious liberty, about you know the the extent to which uh, churches are you know are considered essential, um, as well as how Christians can continue to meet together you know, be a part of a family of God together, uh, care for each other, care for their communities and so on. To start our conversation, you know, walk us through, you know, where have we been, where are we now, and and where do you see things developing over the, over the coming uh, weeks as different parts of the country, you know, reopen at different paces? Tim Keller said uh, the other day in a, in a conversation with uh, NIH uh, Director Francis Collins, every church in the country will have to be replanted. I think that's exactly right uh, in, a, in a sense. And I think that the other part of that that has to come in is the way that most churches are planted is with a uh, what's called a soft launch and then a hard launch. And so a, a church that's planting will start uh, by having stages of people who are uh, gathered together, doing things in multiple different ways until there's a day when this is going to be the new normal. And every church is going to have to do that. There, there's, there are going to be stages along the way uh, where churches are going to say, we're going to start uh, in some locations. That's going to mean uh, having outdoor uh, services where churches can do that for a while or uh, drive up services, or we're going to have uh multiple services, maybe where we didn't have multiple services before, uh, because we've got to keep everybody spaced out. Uh, Maybe we start having some worship services now with some restrictions, but we're not going to have Sunday school yet, or small groups yet, or or what have you. So that's going to take place with every church, and that's going to take a lot of planning and working through, as almost everyone I know is doing right now. And I uh, I think part of the pressure is that you're going to have uh, an expectation, and I get it. I've got that expectation too. I hate uh, not knowing whether a Sunday is a Sunday, but uh, there's going to be an expectation that suddenly there's going to be a Sunday where everything is just like it was in January, and that's not going to happen for a while. It's going to be a staged process, and we're going to have to be patient with one another as we work through that, especially people in churches being patient with um, their pastors and leaders. Some of them are going to go faster than some of us might think is prudent, and some are going to go slower than some would think is is advisable. Well, we have to extend each other a good bit of grace here, knowing that everybody's trying to do the best they can in, in some really, really difficult circumstances. So I want to I want to ask you a little bit about the conversation around religious liberty connected to this. You know, I, I think your point is really important for us to consider in terms of having grace with each other. You know, especially within the church as we're trying to figure out how to live life together um, again with with you know kind of a different different senses of of what's wise and prudent. That same dimension, that same dynamic is happening uh, with local government officials, state state government officials in some places. How are you looking at the issue of religious liberty as it relates to you know how churches are being uh, regulated in certain places? We you know we have flashpoints in in California, uh, Minnesota, a few other places. There's controversies about communion and uh, singing in churches. How how should Christians be thinking about uh, these issues? Well, uh, first of all, uh, it's not a violation of religious liberty for uh, the government to say out of uh, a compelling interest, 
in protecting public health. We can't have large gatherings over a certain amount uh, for a time. That's what we've experienced and in many places are still experiencing. As long as uh, the government is treating religious institutions the same as non-religious institutions when they are the same. Uh, they're going to be unique dynamics to gathering in, for instance, a, a church that would be different than people going through a grocery store who can be spaced out uh, a certain amount. So you have to say, are they being treated the same? Uh, in in the places where there's an overlap in that sameness. And in some places, that's not been the case. So you can't make the case that you could open a casino or a sports arena and not open a church. Uh, they, they have to be, when you have, you have the same amount. So I think that what governments should do is rather than specify this in terms of churches uh, or synagogues or mosques or whatever, they should classify it in terms of the activity that's going on. So if you can't have safely a group of, uh, of 50 people gathering together for something else, then that ought, to, that ought to apply across the board and not single out uh, religious institutions. And that, that means a deference on the part of the state in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, what what uh, religious accommodation ought to be, and a deference on the part of the church to recognize that we have had uh, we have had situations that have been traced back specifically to uh, gatherings for choir practices and things like that, and we ought to do our due diligence there as well. And I think most people are. There are certain unique dynamics that happen within a church that don't happen in. Uh, in some other uh, places. Uh, singing, for instance, gathering together very closely and singing uh, can be, uh, public health officials tell us, a, a way of expelling uh, and propelling the disease. You don't have that in most other aspects of life other than maybe, you know, singing Sweet Caroline at a at a ball game in Boston or something like that, but you don't see that mo in most aspects of, of uh, American life. But uh, I think the CDC guidelines handle all that really well because the CDC uh, guidelines that came out aren't directives to churches, say, here's what you need to do. And I was afraid they might be. Uh, and and I, I thought that would be a mistake, both in terms of separation of church and state and in terms of effectiveness in dealing with uh, public health, because you, you can't encompass everything that goes, what goes on in a uh, Roman Catholic parish in Los Angeles is completely different than what goes on at the First Baptist Church of Cleveland, Ohio, and that's very different than what goes on at the Axios Church plant in New York. I mean, th there's just so many differences here. But the CDC guidelines came through and said, here's a list of things from what we can see looking at religious gatherings that ought to be thought through, uh, as, and they give examples. And so I think there are a lot of uh, churches actually benefited from those sorts of things and the equivalent from, uh, from state and local uh, governments that say, find alternative means to do things like passing the offering plate. A lot of churches have. Or uh, if you have a, a congregation where people are sharing hymn books, find a way to, to do something different than that. I mean, I think those are reasonable recommendations that were made not in terms of directives, uh, and certainly not in terms of directives that have nothing to do with 
with the actual issue at hand. And so I think we ought to take those in stride and listen to those things and, and learn from those things at the same time that we recognize that there are some incursions that are happening because uh, some governments don't understand uh, the fact that uh, religious worship is something that is right at the heart of what Christians and other uh, religious people uh, have in terms of their lives. Now, one of the big confusions is, and I, I find myself so frustrated with this that I bang my head against the wall, uh, the use of the word essential, which we ought to just take out of the conversation for right now uh, completely, because uh, most people, when they hear the word essential, what they're hearing is important. And so they're saying, well, if you're saying that a church isn't essential, then you're saying a church isn't, uh, isn't important. And I think that's, that's confusing. When we're, uh, a lot of the issues that we've been dealing with in terms of essential have to do with things like, for instance, a, uh, there was a local government that said not only could you not have large groups of people gathering in the height of the, the pandemic in their area, but that people couldn't access the building at all in a way that was preventing pastors and leaders from streaming their services. And so we had to come in and say, this is an essential uh, activity that takes place. That doesn't mean that we're saying that preaching is more important than uh, serving in other ways within the church. We're saying this is essential to doing uh, what we have to do in order to keep connected. Or in cases where we had some local uh, governments that would say uh, it's essential for doctors and nurses to be able to access a patient uh, with coronavirus, which is, of course, true, uh, but not essential for chaplains uh, to be able to do that. And, and we had to make the, the case chaplaincy is an essential aspect of healthcare if we're dealing with the whole person. And that's, uh, that's a key component of, uh, of hospital chaplaincy. And so that case has to be made. And so there are going to continue to be some problems or continue to be some skirmishes that uh, happen in various places. Some of those are going to require lawsuits uh, like we've seen in Minnesota and California. Some of them are just going to re require a telephone call to a mayor or to a, a board of uh, supervisors to say, do you realize what you're doing here? Uh, and some of it has to do not even with policies, but just with, uh, with stupidly worded comments along the lines of, uh, you know, I, I, every, every example that I can think of tends to be in reference to Bill de Blasio in, in New York, just saying things that, uh, that, that, first of all, are bombastic, but second of all, through which he has no authority to actually carry out. So to say, uh, I'm warning the Jewish people in New York City uh, to stop doing what you're doing, well, that is a really, really ill thought through at best uh, way to communicate what may be a legitimate public health concern. Maybe you do have uh, people that were gathering in ways that were inappropriate in New York. I don't know in that context, but that is not the way uh, to speak to it. Thanks, Dr. Moore. Dr. Moore, I want to shift gears uh, a little bit. In recent days and weeks, we have seen um, the tragic killings of multiple Black men and women. Um, most recently, um, the killings of um, 
Arbery on his run and then George Floyd. We've seen the videos, we've seen the pictures. Can you walk us through what biblical lament and righteous anger look like when um, we are confronted with those injustices and we are grieving those murders? Well, there's a, a meme that's been going around, uh, a quote from Will Smith uh, saying, racism is not getting worse, racism is getting filmed. And I think that's exactly right. I mean, if you look at the key component in almost every one of the situations that have happened in recent years, almost, not all of them, but almost all of them, have come to public awareness simply because they are filmed. And so people are able to see with their own eyes something that is indefensible uh, taking place. I think that's a, a moment of realization about one of the, the reasons that this happens is because of something that's fundamentally twisted and wrong in human nature. So if you look at the, the way that the scripture reveals God's creation of human beings, he gives them dominion over the created order, the man and the woman. He does not give them dominion over each other. Human beings don't have dominion over each other and they don't have the right to give or take life. Uh, and that, that's reserved to, to God. And so what you have taking place uh, right away after the fall in the narrative of Scripture is Genesis 4, uh, Cain uh, murdering his brother Abel. And it's not just that you have this murder. It's that what God reveals there is a sense of Cain believing that he can hide from God, that God cannot see what he has done. And so if you look at uh, whether we're talking about uh, lynchings in the uh, late 19th or throughout the first half of the, the 20th century and then beyond in many cases, uh, whether you're thinking about uh, any of these situations that we know about and a multitude that we don't know about, often there is the sense of as long as this is not noticed or seen, then somehow I am exempt from judgment. That's not what Scripture reveals. And so when we're speaking to the justice and injustice of these sorts of situations, we're not only speaking on behalf of those who are victimized by it, although we are. Uh, your, the, the blood of your brother Abel cries from the ground, uh, God says. But we're also speaking to the one, uh, to the conscience of those who might either do these things or might, as Paul says in Romans 1, give hearty approval to those who do, uh, or uh, those like Jesus tells us about in Luke 10, who simply want to avert their eyes and to look away and to say, no, you have to understand the word that comes from God that says the one who does not love the brother whom he has seen or sister whom he has seen cannot say that he then loves the God whom he has never seen, but in whose image these people were created. And so there's a fundamental problem in fallen human nature that seeks to define people in terms of uh, power, in terms of usefulness, in terms of visibility. Uh, and, and that's a Darwinian view of the universe. It is not a Christian view of the universe. And so I think that part of the issue right now is not just that, is not just that you have a sense of grief and lament 
but there's also a sense of exhaustion and frustration. And, and I see that right now really across the board in talking to Christians, white, black, brown, whatever, who are exhausted because this keeps happening. And so you have, uh, as one uh, friend of mine said, he said, I couldn't even look at the Arbery video because I couldn't handle any more of this. I think there's a sense of exhaustion. I think what we need to think about in in this context is something along the lines of what C.S. Lewis talked about in his lecture on learning in wartime that's included in The Weight of Glory, where he says one of the problems that comes with trying to learn, to speaking to students, uh, in a time in which the whole world seems to have gone wrong is a sense of frustration Is this going to do any good and a sense of disillusionment? Well, I mean, ultimately, nothing that we do does any good. If what we mean by that is that it establishes a a permanent end to anything that is wrong. That's true in terms of just personally our own wrestling against sin. And so it would be really easy to say, you know what? I'm sitting here trying to deal with my envy or uh, or my covetousness, but I know that at the end of the day, 20 years from now, if I'm living, I'm still going to be a sinner. So why 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 try it? Well, that's not a Christian approach to uh, seeking and pursuing the kingdom of God in one's own life. And it's not a Christian approach to seeking to do what is right in the public arena. That doesn't mean that we're going to know immediately here are all of the steps that we ought to take to keep these things uh, from taking place. But you can't get anywhere if you're saying we're not going to wrestle with that and and try to figure out uh, how to do that. Then you end up simply empowering this this sort of uh, taking of human life that ultimately uh, erodes not only the sanctity and value of human life, it also erodes uh, a order and, and, and confidence in those legitimate structures of public life because God has given legitimate role, Romans 13, to the wielding of the sword, and he has limited that. I mean, it's very carefully limited. And the limiting is part of the reason why uh, we're able to have a respect and deference for those uh, powers that be because they're not God's. They're servants of public order. So I think there's a, there's a lot bound up in these conversations uh, that uh, we're going to have to continue to, to have. I think you're absolutely right, Dr. Moore, and I especially appreciate your word of encouragement of not growing weary and seeking justice and seeking righteousness. I've heard from just the people I've talked to, um, just kind of that sentiment of here we go again, another one, and... Um, I, I'm, I'm sure many many people are feeling that weariness, so I, I appreciate that um, reminder to keep pressing on and to keep seeking um, justice. And so there's been a lot of talk of systematic racism and how it manifests both um, in our culture and our legal system. What do these latest stories reveal about systematic injustice and how should Christians um, think about these issues? Well, I think one of the problems, and this is a uh, sort of a long-standing problem in uh, in human life is 
And I talk about this all the time in reference to a thousand different matters because it all comes down to the same thing. There's the tendency to, in human nature, as fallen as we are, to either put a both and where God has put an either or. So it's either, uh, God says it's either God or mammon. It's either God or, uh, or Baal. It's either the way of the cross or the way of the flesh. And often what fallen human beings in our rebellion want to do is to say, well, it's both and. It's both God and Baal. It's both Jesus and mammon. It's both uh, flesh and spirit uh, in a way that is not legitimate. And God says that we'll be called to account. And then there's also a tendency to where God has put a both and to put an either or. So, well, Jesus is either our God or a human being. Uh, we either have grace or we have obedience. And in many ways, what you often, we either have evangelism or we love neighbor. Uh, and often you have people who say, well, sin is either personal in terms of the conscience or it manifests itself in terms of systems. So you can have some people, for instance, who would say, well, if we just get the systems right, uh, then, then we will end these, uh, these problems. And uh, anyone who understands scripture or human nature knows that's not true because the, the root problem is with a human heart that can use any system, including a just system. And you'll have Christians that will say, well, if you just see to it that people have uh, have uh, character and see to it that people are born again, then you don't see these things manifesting uh, themselves in systems when, of course, they do. Now, almost everybody recognizes that uh, in terms of other issues that they care about. So uh, those of us, for instance, who care about the abortion issue know that you're speaking both to the personal conscience. We're saying to a woman, don't abort your baby. Uh, we're saying to a man, don't pressure someone uh, to, to have an abortion. We're, we're speaking to that to that personal level. And we're speaking to systems. The, the problem is that there's a, a government that says there's not uh, a, a personal recognition of the worth and value of the child in the womb. There's a problem of a predatory industry, Planned Parenthood and others in the abortion industry. And all of that has to be addressed. Uh, we, we understand that, uh, those of us, and there aren't many of us left, who still care about gambling uh, and, and see the problem there. You're speaking both to the person to say, don't take the money uh, for your family and go to a casino and to get rid of it. And we're talking about ways that, these, that the gambling industry exploits and oppresses uh, poor and vulnerable people and, uh, and often and is able to do that without any government oversight at all. All of it is true. And the same thing is true here. You've got to speak both to, and Martin Luther King understood this uh, in terms of the way that he spoke to the issue, and so did Fannie Lou Hamer and others uh, in the civil rights movement in the 50s through the 70s, which is to speak both to the consciences of people who were gripped in racism to give a, a vision of what this could look like otherwise, and to say we have to have a Civil Rights Act, a Voting Rights Act. We have to have reforms in, uh, in the way that the system is working because uh, you could have a scenario where people are not personally 
racist, perhaps, and you still have Jim Crow laws in effect that they're not looking at, they're not recognizing. That would be unjust. Or you could have Jim Crow laws being revealed, but a culture of uh, hatred and white supremacy still there. That would not work either. You have to have both. And I think in, in this sense, you have to have both in terms of speaking to consciences, why this matters, uh, and also saying, what are the steps that we can take to see to it that we reduce this? We'll be right back after this message from our sponsor. This episode of Capital Conversations is brought to you by The Good Book Company, publisher of the Talking Points series. This is a series of short books focused on Christian compassion, convictions, and wisdom for today's big issues. The particular book we want to highlight this week is the Talking Points on Abortion book. This is a book written by Dr. Lizzie Ling and Vaughn Roberts that seeks to help Christians think biblically, speak wisely, and act compassionately on the complex issue of abortion. To learn more and to purchase this book, you can click the link in our show notes or go to thegoodbook.com. That's thegoodbook.com. Dr. Moore, this this has been so helpful uh, for I know not not just pastors who are listening, but also you know men and women who are working on Capitol Hill and have been seeing these news stories as we've all been at home during this really unique coronavirus season. And and I just I love that when whenever we have you on Capital Conversations, we have a a lot of questions that we would love to get your thoughts on, and we often only have to ask a few of them because you then start answering all of the other threads that <laughs> that we're pulling on. So I I love I love having you on here. And and one of those that that I that I want to land this conversation on is how you're always encouraging the church and encouraging us here on staff at ERLC to not let the corners of our society that people want to make invisible be invisible. This is obviously part of the heroic work of decades of pro-life work to say the unborn child should not be invisible. But I think one thing that's that's been really hard about this pandemic is how it it, it seems like we, we as a nation, it's a news story that you know, just just as we're recording today here at the end of May, it looks like we have crossed the 100,000 lives lost mark. Uh, 40 million people uh, have filed for unemployment since this all began. This has all happened in, in about 10 weeks. It it doesn't really, I don't get the sense that our nation, and, and I say our nation, you know, maybe that's systemic, but then also myself personally, are really grieving the staggering loss. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's partly because of the enormity of it. Uh, I mean, when there is uh, when there is a hundred thousand people who have died, it's so big that it's hard for people to to wrap their minds and hearts around, and they find some way to just sort of get numb to it. I mean, that's that's part of it. The, the first time that there's a wave of people dying, there's a sense of, of horror. And then after a while, people become sadly accustomed to it, not because they're, they're trying to get accustomed, to it, because they're just trying to live life uh, and to, to sort of uh, adjust. Um, thing is true when you think about uh, the way that most people, I mean, we, we talked about earlier the uh, fact that, that in, these, uh, in these killings uh, that we've seen, that we have video of this and, and people are confronted with the image of it. Well, the way that the pandemic, uh, one of the cruelties 
uh, of the pandemic is that uh, virtually everybody who's dying is dying alone. And so even the people who lose them are not able to be with them in those uh, final moments. Now, there are some heroic uh, doctors and nurses and others who have uh, found ways when they can to uh, maybe FaceTime or Skype uh, in loved ones in those final moments of death. But that's that's something. It's not the same thing. Uh, but And often that can't be done. In most cases, that can't be done. Uh, and, and then you're also not able to have – I mean, if you think about we've now lost more people than in the Korean War and the Vietnam War put together. In the Korean War and the Vietnam War – when someone who lost his life uh, came back in a flag-draped uh, casket, there was a funeral that took place. Those, those families and friends were able to grieve together and had certain rituals uh, that, uh, that are good in calling together grief. In most all of these situations, that's not possible. I lost my own grandmother uh, in a nursing home uh, during this uh, pandemic, not to COVID, but because of COVID, uh, we couldn't have a funeral. And I, uh, I kept saying to my wife, this, this doesn't feel real to me uh, in a way that it, it would have when I've lost other people, when I can go and grieve with others and say goodbye. Well, that's the case with uh, with with not just the 100,000 people who have died, but with uh, almost everyone who has died of anything since this pandemic has taken place. That takes a huge toll on human communities and on the human psyche. You you mentioned uh, nursing homes, and I'm and I'm so sorry for your family's loss, and and I'm I'm thankful that you shared that. It it's it's pretty staggering also to think about how 43 the the statistics that I've seen thus far that 43 percent of COVID deaths have happened in assisted livings and in nursing homes and you know there there will be a time for investigations and research and we've already kind of seen it with the different policies of New York versus Florida for why that is but I'm I'm just curious if you, if you could speak to the the cultural and the spiritual side of it. Why do the elderly feel particularly invisible in our cultural conversation? There's a lot of talk about churches. There's a lot of talk about beaches even, but there hasn't been a ton of focus on the fact that almost half of these deaths have happened to our loved ones in nursing homes. Well, part of that is because that would obviously be a very vulnerable place. You have uh, you have gatherings of people who are together, very dense populations uh, who who often, in almost every case, are uniquely vulnerable uh, to this disease. And so it's not, at one level, it's not surprising uh, that that has taken place. There have been some situations, as you mentioned, where there have been failed uh, policies in nursing homes or, or nursing homes and care centers that haven't done what they ought to do. But in a lot of cases, you have nursing homes and care centers, probably in most cases, who did everything uh, as as best they could, and still uh, this has ravaged them. I think the, the larger issue is an understanding of the elderly that I hope is one of, there are going to be good and bad things that come out of this pandemic that are going to be with us for a while. I hope one of the good things is a recognition of uh, care for elderly people, whether they're in nursing homes or whether they're uh, what uh, what we used to call shut-ins uh, at home. I mean, we, we've all sort of experienced something like that over the past uh, couple of months. 
And you've had situations where some elderly people who haven't wanted to bother their churches, you know, bother, I'm putting bother in quotes here, it's the way they're thinking of it, have had to. I mean, I, I, I think of uh, countless situations where churches have said, we have an elderly uh, widow in our community who called and said, I can't get groceries uh, I, I can't get out, and people have stepped in, and as they have, they started to realize she has a lot of needs uh, that that we can be bearing and and working with that we just didn't know about. So I hope that that uh, that that changes, and that all of us. I mean, I think there's a tendency. The a poet David White uh, wrote one time that there's a tendency to only see the people who are moving at the same velocity that you are whatever stage of life that, that you are. And I think that's that's definitely true. And a and there's also a human nature aspect that only tends to pay attention to the people who are in front of you uh, on a regular basis. And often elderly people can't be. Uh, they're not there at church sometimes when they can't be. Uh, and so maybe this will bring about a sense of awareness of, of what we need to, to be doing in terms of ministry. And that's that's something that is, you know, to come back to the word essential, uh, that is essential uh, in terms of the life of the church in the book of Acts. If you look at the book of Acts, uh, one of the things that uh, that immediately takes place is how do we care for the widows uh, among us? And that's consistent with the whole canon. One final final question for you. Do, you. do you think that all this time at home and on Zoom and FaceTime and behind screens and, and keeping our distance... Once this is all said and done, hopefully sooner rather than later, but let's just say 2021, 2022, do you think we'll value and think about personal relationships and, and real life connections, whether that's in the church or in the home or in our neighborhoods, differently after this passes? Do you think that's a change that could happen for the better? Maybe for a little while, but I, I have uh, enough of an Augustinian uh, view of, of humanity uh, to know that uh, there are certain human longings that aren't going to be extinguished, and uh, there's a human tendency to become used to things and to take it for granted. And so as, as much as I would like to say, after this, we are never going to take for granted uh, being uh, with each other and, and so forth, uh, we probably will. And we'll probably have to, we'll have to probably, as the scripture says, continually be encouraging one another and reminding one another. Um, I, I think that's probably going to be the case. And actually, uh, I hope that it is, because if, uh, if I could look into the future from a year from now, and uh, I hear people saying, hey, uh, pay attention and, and be sure that you're connecting and that you have community, that will tell me well, this crisis has passed, and uh, and we yeah. have the luxury to say right. to one another, hey, remember that you need each other. Right, right. Well, let's be the ones who keep reminding one another of that. Dr. Moore, thanks so much for joining us on Capital Conversations and your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, so Dr. Moore is off to his uh, his board meeting that he had right after our podcast, but I really appreciated um, 
the time he spent with us and the thoughts he shared on a wide range of issues. I'm back here with Travis and Chelsea. Travis, I I, I know something we've talked about a lot, being religious liberty advocates during uh, during this pandemic. It's, it's sometimes felt exhausting to continually have to make the same arguments over and over and over again in, in the public squares that relates to religious liberty. Uh, so I'm just curious of, of your thoughts uh, after this after this conversation with Dr. Moore, how he's thinking about these issues, how you as our general counsel uh, are engaging in these issues from a legal perspective. It feels like we've got some turbulence before everything goes back to normal as it relates to public officials and and churches and and what's next. Well, I know I think that's right. and i I think that as you know, as Dr. Moore said, I mean, the in, in some ways, the most difficult days of the pandemic are ahead of us in terms of how we're figuring out how to live together. Because, you know, on, on the front end, things moved so quickly. I mean, it's amazing to, you know, to think back on the timeline of the decisions that you were making in terms of, you know, whether to cancel or suspend services or, you know, whatever. All of that happened, you know, over the course of a couple of weeks. But what is ahead of us is going to play out in, in, at different paces in different parts of the country uh, over the course of months. And, you know, depending on what happens with the virus uh, next uh, next winter, you know, could, you know, could take longer. And so, you know, I think his, you know, his uh, sort of call to charity is, you know, is an important one because the reality is we, you know, every Every church is faced with really difficult decisions right now, and you know the answers are going to vary from place to place. The guidance and requirements from local officials are going to vary from place to place. You know, and the science is changing. Two months ago, we were told that the underlying virus that causes COVID nineteen can stay on services for up to fourteen days. Now we're learning that that's not the case. Uh, two months ago, we were told that that wearing face masks was uh, was not helpful in stopping the spread. Now. Oh, we're now we're told that we need to wear face masks, and uh, CDC has put out a study showing that uh, singing can you know can accelerate the spread of of the virus. And so you know I think we do have some difficult days ahead, and you know I think we can continue to expect local government and, and state government officials uh, to get things right and to get things wrong. Um, and so you know I, I think we we've got to have. In the in the first instance, as a foundational matter, uh, grace and patience with each other as we're working through these issues. On the other hand, I think we do have to be vigilant and and recognize that that there there are really serious rights at stake here. And I think where necessary, you know, where we can't work things out with with local government, you know, we need to be you know ready and willing to to take these issues to the court. You know, thankfully we have you know a number of. Uh, of, of really strong allies who are, you know, who are litigators. You know, Jeff, you <laughs> referred to me as general counsel. You know, I can assure you most of my buddies from law school do not consider me to be a real lawyer. I've, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not a litigator. You're more but, of a lawyer than Chelsea we have a lot and I. Of, well, that's that that's 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 technically true. But but my point is, you know, there there are a lot of great law firms that we're working with uh, and and working to support to, you know, to take these issues forward. But, you know, there there aren't easy answers to the questions about singing in church. There aren't easy answers to the questions about uh, about communion. These are difficult and complex. They're going to vary from church to church and place to place and, and what your space looks like and how you can set things up and, you know, what your theological convictions are uh, about uh, about those issues. So I guess to sum it up, you know, we we have some difficult days ahead and we need to be ready to be gracious with each other. 
Travis, I appreciate the reminder to be gracious to one another. I was chatting with um, a friend last night who's a pastor out in the Midwest, and we were um, asking how we could pray for him and his wife, and he just asked for prayer because he said half my congregation wanted us to open up fully and completely weeks ago, and then the other half is terrified. And I would imagine each pastor is facing very similar situations of the congregations being divided and any step they take, they'll be criticized. And so just to remind ourselves and our listeners to be praying for our pastors because they're doing, you know, they're figuring it out too. And um, they're going to likely make, make some folks upset regardless of. Yeah. And and they're, and they're not, and they're not health experts either. You know, these, these are really difficult questions. Yeah. You're right. You're right, Chelsea. We need to be praying for them and encouraging our pastors. One of the uh, videos that really stuck out to me uh, when thinking about the turbulent days ahead as we all figure out the best way to protect one another and we're reopening society and, and all of that was North Dakota's governor, Governor Burgum, was asking residents to really not allow things like wearing a face mask become ideological and political. And the new culture war. Yeah, he was just he was he was talking about, you know, when somebody chooses when somebody chooses to wear a face mask, that's not their way of telling you which political party they're a part of or which candidates they support or what new, you know, cable news program that they watch every night. He goes, maybe it's just, and then he kind of paused and you can tell that he's choking back tears. And I don't know his personal story, but he said, well, maybe it's because they've got a five-year-old child at home battling cancer and their immune system is, is so weak that they don't want to take any risks of introducing a novel virus into their house. Or maybe it's that, you know, we talked a lot about caring for the elderly and maybe they've got, you know, an, an aging parent living in their house with them. And so when they go out to uh, to Home Depot or to the grocery store or or to their church service, as they are trying to get reacclimated into society, they've got somebody very immune compromised and, and very at risk from this novel virus. And I just thought that was such a picture of empathetic public leadership to in this moment where everything is ideological and everything gets uh, tribalized, even a pandemic, uh, for a governor to stand up and with tears in his eyes, just plead for people to be gracious with one another. And I think we're going to need a lot, a lot more of that in, in the days to come. So we, we covered a lot of ground uh, in this conversation with Dr. Moore, in addition to coronavirus, religious liberty, the invisible in our society, caring for the elderly. We also talked with him about some of these horrific injustices uh, that have happened to African-American men, Ahmaud Arbery, uh, George Floyd. There have been other stories that have been filmed. Uh, I, I so appreciated him sharing that Will Smith quote about um, racism is just being filmed, and this is why you know we're all reacting in uh, lamenting and feeling angry about it. But it's but it's not new, Chelsea. I know there's a there's a resource that was that was really meaningful to you that you wanted to uh, to recommend to our listeners on these conversations. Yeah. So when I mentioned um, when I, we were chatting with Dr. Moore earlier um, of just the weariness I've seen and heard. Um, Latasha Morrison and Catherine Freeman, which are two um, African American Christian thought leaders recently put out an IGTV, so it's on Instagram, and the the title of the video is Another Day, Another Racist Incident, We Are Tired. And they dialogue for about an hour of just their experiences, um, just commenting on where we are. And they're again, they're both 
followers of Christ. So I was really um, encouraged by that conversation and um, there's weariness and I appreciated Dr. Moore's um, encouragement and I would I would uh, recommend that conversation to folks to, to tune in and listen. Yeah, that's good. This is Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. Thanks to our production team, and thanks also to you for joining us today. Be sure to subscribe to Capital Conversations wherever you are listening, uh, and consider dropping us a five-star rating and a review. This really will help others find this show to hear important conversations like the one we had today. Our hope for this podcast is that the conversations would foster a new way for Christians to engage in the conversations of the public square. So if you know someone who would enjoy this podcast, send them a link to this episode. We would love to welcome them around our table. Resources from this conversation are available in the show notes and at ERLC.com, where you can find all of our other ERLC podcasts available to equip you and your church.